I remember a book published in the 1980s called Segways. It was by two poets, Marvin Bell and William Stafford. You know this one, Conrad? Yeah. Who decided to have a conversation in poems. Stafford was a major American poet, so that conversation still has a pull for me as a curious extension of his work. In another book, Braided Creek, the writers Jim Harrison and Ted Couser, former poet laureate of the United States, held a conversation again in poems, the two voices taking poetry outside the limits of the single lyric and creating something new. Now, in the same tradition, we have a book at once more intimate, more moving than either of those two remarkable experiments. This awkward art, this awkward art. The title suggests poetry, of course, but also the art of being human, being a father and a husband, a daughter and a sister, talking to each other and honoring each other and a family in verse. This book was not composed as a deliberate dialogue like the other two I mentioned, but out of a rare blend of familial love and mutual artistic respect. Conrad Hilberry has had a long and productive career as both teacher and writer, author of many beautiful books, including After Music, Player Piano, Sorting the Smoke, and one of my favorite titles, what is it? Is it The Fingernail of Luck? Oh my God, what a great title. <laughs> Much of my life has lived by the fingernail of luck. You know? <laughs> His daughter Jane has found her own strong voice in a different way training in medieval and renaissance studies, then in a series of leaps, devoting herself with greater and greater purpose to poems and her appreciations of recent artists like Edgar Britton. Jane's book, Body Painting, which won the Colorado Book Award, and more recently, a bit of controversy for its very compelling cover, has been followed by new writing that probes even further what is sayable and knowable in poems. In their different ways, father and daughter know that art is not a matter of appropriateness, but a matter of opening to experience, even when it leads you into scary places. What gets opened has to be followed and shaped and given purposeful utterance. This awkward art is built on family narratives, the accidental death of a daughter and sister, the death of a wife and mother after a long life, the loves and connections made by those who survive. Jane says, I grew up on the shores of a grief as large as the sea, and I know her tides and colors. I know how to move with her as skillfully as a surfer who traces a wave's changing shape. Conrad says, shouts from the beach, another girl, alive, 
runs to taste the cold in a single dash and fall. She swims out, and I crawl over the curl of breakers toward the lame and slippery shore. In a very different context, Jane says, I'd allowed myself to thirst and thirst, and when I drank from the cup of her body, the snow began to fall. Pages later, Conrad says, What will be left? Daughters, students, friends, and a long love, a love so steady I almost forget, I walk in it all day. Somehow this dialogue is more beautiful for having been discovered rather than willed. As two artists opened to the correspondences they found in each other's poems. Please give them a warm welcome, Jane and Conrad. First of all, I just want to thank everybody for coming. It's, it's just such a, it's such a thrill and such a moving thing to look out and see so many people that imp are important to us in all kinds of ways. Um, I want to mention especially Phil and Elaine Wagner, who um, Phil Wagner and my father have been friends since eighth grade, and they're here in the audience tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I see a lot of my students and Jenny's students who we met with this morning and lots of beloved friends, so thank you so much for coming. Um, I also want to thank David for the lovely introduction and for um, putting us on the program and for the Visiting Writers Series for sponsoring us. And I want to thank Colin and... Katie Montgomery and Jared Richman, who all had a hand in making the beautiful broadsides at the press at Colorado College. And um, finally, I want to mention Tim Davis. And if you've seen a copy of the book, um, This Awkward Art, it has this gorgeous cover on it, which is one of Tim Davis's beautiful photographs. And one of the great serendipitous things about this book was that we found Tim at just the right moment. <laughs> and um, he gave us this gorgeous image for the cover. And some of Tim's, uh, he has a, a beautiful calendar that he puts together every year, so he has uh, copies of his calendar there, too. Um, shall we jump in? Let's go. Okay. <laughs> I believe you're reading first. Okay. <clears throat> the first, w w these poems come in little groups. And the first group has to do with Adam, who is my grandson, uh, Jane's nephew. Um, and the first poem is called Adam's Christmas. Uh, Adam was born in July, and so this would be his first Christmas. He must have been six or seven months old or something like that. Adam's Christmas. Too small to know a gift or give one. Too new to understand annunciation, a peculiar star, a crowded inn. 
Like the first Adam, you're setting out to name the colors, faces, lights, this blurred and lushly peopled garden before any of it needs to be redeemed. <laughs> My poem is called Nexus. Um, and this is a poem about some neighbor kids, not the Moulton kids, some of whom are here in the audience. <laughs> but another family that uh, lived next door to me for a while where there was a lot of trouble in the family. And the, um, this was also when Adam was really, really young, just a new, newborn baby. And the neighbor kids would always sneak out of their house and come over, and they always wanted to be around Adam. And I'm not quite sure why, but he had some kind of magnetic attraction for them. Um, I think maybe it was because, you know, they could see this was a kid who was really being loved by his mother, and there was sort of this pull towards Adam, so this is what this is. Nexus. Once dad is drunk, brother and sister sneak out, catching the screen door so it doesn't slam. They knock at every hour. Is Adam awake? They come as if to rub an amulet, to touch his luck, his mother love. They parade him down the block in a wheelbarrow decked with streamers, chanting, Adam, Adam, Adam. Soon the girl will steep in vodka. The boy will slam his fist through doors. Is Adam awake? He, little child, is a pin on the map. X of treasure, nexus of love. And this, this is the third and, and last Adam poem. It's called Midnight. And uh, in this poem, Adam is a couple of years old, two, two or three, something like that. But he wouldn't go to sleep at night. And his, his mother found out that if she put him in the car and drove around, then he would oh, finally nod off. So this is, this is Adam being put to sleep. <clears throat> Midnight. The boy won't go to sleep, dancing, clowning, chewing the edges of night, until his mother straps him in the car and drives. Glancing patterns, storefronts, Christmas deer outlined in lights. He leans back and seems to concentrate, breathing in the dark where faces disappear, nothing to be hankered for or lost, no place to go, only gears clutching, Second, third, fourth, easing him forward, then back once more, acceleration all mixed up with gravity. Eyes roll, head tilts, and he's asleep, rocked in the cradle of the motor age. And on the tape, Art Tatum's liquid touch, not loud, syncopated with a wingless flight of streetlights headed south. What sleep has always been, Snowbowed shapes outside a window, a swirl that by morning may be plowed and heaped, but now is shifty, drifting, and blown. This, this time of year. The sleeper's fingers stretch and curl as he might reach in a shadowed stream feeling for weeds, then going under to touch the red fins of the fish that swim the midnight flux of dream. You're oh, up next again. Oh, I'm, I'm up next. 
Um, we have two poems that, yes, come on in, please. Two poems that aren't really very much alike, but they each uh, make a reference to the heart, and so we, we've made them in a, a pair, and anyhow. Um, the first one is a short one of mine called Christmas, Mexico. And uh, if you're, we spent, my wife and I were in Mexico for a fall one time. And it kept getting on toward Christmas time, November or December, but it didn't feel like Christmas. This was Mexico and it just, okay. Um, <laughs> Christmas, Mexico. December here, with sun and the faint smell of wood smoke in the air, a late September day. The jasmine drops a few last blooms. Limes swell and ripen one by one outside the door. Dusk comes a little earlier. Here, we will have months or years to eat the apple of our hearts down to the dark seeds. How leisurely the fall, how slow the holy cold comes on. So um, I grew up on a college campus, Kalamazoo College, where my dad taught. And so when we were kids, you know, we would always like roam around the campus and do things and we were explicitly forbidden to go and um, charge students to polish their shoes, but we did it anyway. <laughs> and we didn't have enough foresight to realize that we would get caught because we had shoe polish on our fingers afterwards. But another thing that we did was we would go into the biology building and they had like these shelves, you know, with jars of like weird things in them, which were kind of fascinating and creepy, and so anyway, this poem comes from that image. She keeps her heart in a jar, the way they do in the biology building. That way, whoever wants to break it has to break the jar first. Most of the time, she doesn't need it with her anyway. Most of the time, she feels lighter without it. When she was a girl, she had a red wagon. Her heart's like that, something she can pull with a handle, but hard to steer if it gets going downhill. In school, she liked dissection, frogs, fetal pigs. So she's given her heart to science. When she gets lonely, she goes and folds her hands around the jar. <laughs> Oh, the Bones poem, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I should say, maybe it's become obvious by now, but what we did was to sort of look at our poems and then arrange them into little groupings thematically. So the, the book has little sections that's either the name of like somebody in the family or um, the hearts or, you know, bones, or we have a motion section and a cricket section. So we're reading these in you know, we're reading sections of each of these groupings. 
Um, this is called Macabre, and it begins with um, a picture from some old woodcuts of uh, skeletons dancing. And isn't that strange that these skeletons would be dancing? It reminded me a little bit of the <clears throat> uh, of, of what I what I saw in, in Mexico, the mariachi band. Uh, there were paintings of a mariachi band that was all skeletons. A skeleton would be playing the trumpet there, and another skeleton would be playing the guitar and the drum. And I, well, what's going on there anyway with these uh, music coming from these skeletons? And I couldn't quite make it out, and I still can't. Um, and this, this poem gives one interpretation of that, but I don't think it's necessarily the right one. That, that's something to think about, those, uh, those dancing skeletons. What are they supposed to be telling us about death? Um, but okay, here, here's the poem that's, that doesn't uh, settle the matter at all. <laughs> uh, macabre. In the old woodcuts, the leering skeletons approach and tap us on the shoulder, cutting in, requesting the next dance. The civility of it, the formality. We dance a few turns to the fluty music, fingers hooked in rib bones, then slip off two by two into the bushes. <clears throat> Getting born is violent, flesh tearing and crying out, but dying is honor your partner and do-si-do. -si -do. How nimble all the moves, how trim the shrubbery. Well, I'm not so sure about that, really. <laughs> <clears throat> You're on. Okay, so here's another Bones poem called Bones. She likes the way skeletons are decorated, the dress of skin, the fringe of hair on top, tiny moons growing out fingers and toes. She knows she is going to die, so she takes her skeleton out for walks while she can. She knows it will be restless in that nailed box. When she becomes a spirit, she hopes she'll be allowed to visit her skeleton, sing its songs in its narrow cradle, rock it the way she's seen mothers rock babies. The skeleton may be glad to lie down, to see her approach without the truckload of flesh it always had to carry. Always upright, poor spine, poor skeleton. It always wanted to be like a tree, standing in a grove, wind washing the bones, making them sway and dance, and nothing to support but the veined leaves, which sooner or later loosen their hold and fly away like messages to the boneless earth. Um, let me find it here. So David mentioned in his introduction that um, I had a sister who died when she was young. She was nine years old, and I was three years old at the time. And that event um, affected me and shaped my life in, in important ways. Um, so we're going to read a few poems about her. So this is the section uh, called Catherine. And um, it was an accident in which she 
uh, walked off a train um, in the middle of the night and we don't know what happened or what why she was up or what she was doing or exactly you know we don't know exactly what happened but she fell from the train and was killed train I used to think that the sadness I felt was my sister's shadow tugging at my heels wanting to go everywhere with me now I think I feel loss because love cannot contain her capacious spirit. I catch only a glimpse of her face flickering at the windows as I stand in the weeds with my boxes. If only we could stop the train long enough to exchange our gifts, who would mind the parting then, embracing on the iron step, holding each other's faces still for a minute? Then the whistle opens like a scream the wheels grab the rails and the body of white steam and the body of white steam rises and here's one that deals with that matter a little more in, indirectly it's um, <clears throat> it's set at the at the ocean a swimming sort of scene called the sea the sea breaks I turn and take it a monk's hood over my head, then dive into a wave, feeling the heave and slough as tangled water passes. Out beyond breakers, water swells and settles, taking a deep breath for the landing. Buoyed by this depth, I let all sinews go, sell these bones to the sea, two good shoulders and a bad leg. Let water take them, salvage or discard them as it will. No time but this, no obligation, no comfort, no accomplishment, no person but the sea with its cold hands. The sun too far touches no part of me. Without my willing it, the sea brings from its hoard a salt recollection, the bitter ache for a daughter dead, a girl who walked weightless in my love. Her absence rises and falls with me in the heavy water. Shouts from the beach, another girl, alive, runs to taste the cold in a single dash and fall. She swims out, and I crawl over the curl of breakers toward the lame and slippery shore. So another poem from this section. And this is um, a poem called Joy, and it's sort of about, what would I say, moving from seeing the ocean as metaphorical and representative of grief as looking at it, to looking at it sort of more literally as it really is and as um, a potentially joyful um, sight. So this is called Joy for a Friend Who Lives by the Sea. I came to look for shells, but something pulled me to a cove of rocks where mussels cluster, brown and white, and when I touched one, it moved, alive. As I turned toward the water, I felt grief returning, my long familiar, and I thought about you and the songs that sadness might sing in your body. I grew up on the shores of a grief as large as the sea, and I know her tides and colors. I know how to move with her as skillfully as a surfer who traces a wave's changing shape. 
And I know there is another sea, yours, where real surfers rise on the joy of a wave, where last night I saw a green flame, quick as a fuse where the water broke, ignite and disappear. All right, so. Um, the next section is um, called Marion, and it's poems written for my mother. And um, most of the poems in this section were written while she was alive. She died about a year and a half ago. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we've got a few, a few poems for her. The first one, this is an assignment that I gave my students and decided to try, which is to write a poem about your own birth. And, um, you know, I gave them permission to make things up or, you know, to kind of, well, we all have our ways of remembering, which may or may not be accurate. So this, <laughs> this is sort of my own made-up version of my birth. And it's a poem, you know, of tribute to my mom. It's called No Trouble. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> How quiet it was just before 4 a.m., the dark thinning, not a car on the street, the stars burning coldly. Although I was born in a hospital, I imagined my mother at Dr. Ann's house. I was delivered by a woman doctor named Dr. Ann. I kind of like that fact. Okay. Although I was born at a hospital, I imagine my mother at Dr. Ann's house. I slide out, black-haired and bloody. Dr. Ann catches me. It's quick and easy. No screaming at this birth. <laughs> Already I'm behaving very well. <laughs> this girl will give you no trouble, Dr. Ann says. <laughs> wiping me off and handing me to my mother, whom I imagine in her street clothes, something, <laughs> something pressed and stylish. I wish I could remember how my mother smelled when I first lay down on her chest, what her voice sounded like inside her body, whether she smiled or cried. I know she wanted me without thinking the way women did in April of 1958 in Greencastle, Indiana, on the 26th day of the month, just as the dark was thinning. <laughs> and here's a very short one. <clears throat> uh, Marion and I, my wife Marion and I, spent six weeks on the island of Crete one time. And so here's a little, a little bit of island of Crete poem. Here you come, walking downhill from town into the sea wind with bags in your arms, tomatoes perhaps and cheese and oranges. I walk to meet you. Still 15 feet apart, we start talking, not aiming to clarify or convince, just talking, saying what happens, swinging the incense of words down the sloping street to lunch. <laughs> So this poem um, I did write after my mother's death, and um, I was very lucky in that I got to spend 
a long period of time with her when she was really ill, um, just a few months before she died. Uh, this was a gift of the block plan. I wasn't teaching, and so I was able to stay and be with my mom for um, a whole month and Christmas break. And that was really an important time because we had had a relationship that was, you know, as parent-child relationships sometimes are. It was somewhat vexed. Um, but it really gave us a chance to be together in a different way. So this is a poem called The End Result. And one thing about my mother was that she um, she was very... She, she loved language, and um, she could be f funny, but just in sort of a very understated way. And she was like a great grammarian. If you ever had a grammatical question, she would know exactly how to handle it. And um, So anyway, you get a little bit of that in this poem about her. The end result. At times in her sickness, her eyes fixed on me became opaque and I expected her to speak something terrible in its import. At other times, my mother was softer than she'd ever been. I would lie in bed beside her, something I had never done. She said, I have the best daughters anyone could have. I saw my opening. I haven't always been a good one. After the smallest pause, she said, I'm pleased with the end result. It wasn't funny, except in that quiet way she could be funny with words, a humor I didn't recognize until it became prominent as the bones in her chest, her cheeks. Pleased with the end result, there was no better architect of diction. She said it precisely, her language elevated enough to clear the top of my wrongs, my barely concealed contempt, my towering silences. On her flight out of the world, she knew just how to judge. For me, that's a very moving tribute. Um, <clears throat> Here's a, a little longer poem about Marion called Love Poem with Scenery. This, this was written some time ago uh, when we were in, in Mexico. Um, and it takes place on a, a rooftop in Mexico. In Mexico, you can just climb up to the roof and uh, look around. And it, this wasn't on the coast, it was in the mountains. So there was a, a, a dammed up lake down, down below and then mountains over, over further. And um, you, you'll find out a couple of things about Marion. She, um, she taught English as a second language or as a third or fourth language to some of these people. Uh, students from, uh, oh, from Japan or Singapore or someplace. Um, and she was, uh, she was five years older than me and much more experienced, you know. O okay, that's enough. <laughs> um, love poem with scenery on a rooftop in Mexico. Our friends are dying, Kitty Steele, Don Kinsman, while we mourn here on the roof, wrapping sun and wind around our necks like a long scarf woven there to the west in Guanajuato. They die, 
Still funny, quick, generous, no tapering off, just dead. At first, everything seems absolute. The bells, the long-armed spiky cactus, its red flowers clustered in eights, the splash all afternoon of our neighbor's pretentious fountain. But further out, beyond the dammed up lake, sight blurs to haze the blowing dune of mountain, and then another rise that might just be the sky. They're dead. And that's us, gone any minute now to some bright dust out there. What will be left? Daughters, students, friends, and a long love, a love so steady I almost forget I walk in it all day like air, like the downwinding call of the canyon wren, like the faint smell swung from some censer far upwind, blessing me with wood smoke. To think that I, awkward, unhandsome, should have been loved, just matter-of-factly loved, with no subjunctives, no riffling through old possibilities. We knew each other a few months and were married, ignorant and lucky. I was baffled, gradually getting the hang of this new tongue in which you were so fluent. You've always had a gift, tutoring foreigners desperate to speak. Gradually, I slurred my way to new inflections, rolled R's, idioms that can't quite be translated. And now, after daughters, deaths, lives lost and found, love eases back toward silence. Or no, not silence, but a half-speech that slips into the curve of black back and belly spooned together under the blankets, calling each other out of bad dreams. As, here on the roof, Sun and wind move through each other's bodies. Wind and sun twist in your hand, becoming this quick light. Sure. Uh, a little flourish at the end here. Yeah, we, these have been kind of death heavy, so we want to do something a little bit lighter. <laughs> Just so you know, we can. <laughs> so um, we're going to read two poems. This is from a section called Motion. And um, my poem in this section is, is called Tailwind. And it was a, it's about a kid that um, was a good friend of my nephew's and um, who I became very close to and spent a lot of time with, named Zedekiah, who was, um, you know, he came from kind of uh, difficult circumstances, but he just had this incredible kind of strength and inventiveness, and you'll see a little bit of his personality in here. So this is called Tailwind for Zedekiah. At the pool, he finds fins his size in a big blue bin, and works his feet into the rubbery slots. He sinks through turquoise water, tries to walk across the bottom. Then he asks me to lift his feet and lodge the flippers on the pool's rim while he stretches on his belly to get a start. It's awkward. I don't see how it can work. <laughs> he pushes off 
gets the feel of the fins and, like an airplane with tailwind, speeds across the blue. And <clears throat> this one is about Jane's sister, Anne, um, who, when she was oh, a teenager, I used to ride a unicycle all the time, which is, how can anybody do that, you know? And, um, and it sort of raised her up above us all, and she would be scooting around on this darn unicycle, uh, this admirable unicycle. Okay, for Anne on her unicycle. Looking down on us all from your perfect balance, you're the stem of the plum. You are the Statue of Liberty wheeling in from the harbor. You are poised as a peony. You are a potted plant that rose up and peddled the pot. You are the Harlem Globetrotters trotting the globe. When you turn at the lilacs and climb the drive, propelling yourself on that rolling pogo stick, how can anyone ask you to wash the dishes? <laughs> Did, did Paul Revere shovel the stable after he rode with the news? If you want to hear more of these guys, there's a wonderful, if you, if you go on your computer to krcc.org and you find the big something off on the right side um, and click on that, you can find a 20-minute interview with Jane and Conrad that's very beautiful and worth listening to.